Chapter Twenty Nine of *The Man in the Iron Mask* by Alexandre Dumas, translated by William Robson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Prisoner. Since Aramis's singular transformation into a confessor of the order, Baisemeaux was no longer the same man. Up to that period, the place which Aramis had held in the worthy governor's estimation was that of a prelate whom he respected and a friend to whom he owed a debt of gratitude. But now he felt himself an inferior, and that Aramis was his master. He himself lighted a lantern, summoned a turnkey, and said, returning to Aramis, "'I am at your orders, Monseigneur.' Aramis merely nodded his head, as much as to say, "'Very good,' and signed to him with his hand to lead the way. Baisemeaux advanced, and Aramis followed him. It was a calm and lovely starlit night." The steps of three men resounded on the flags of the terraces, and the clinking of the keys hanging from the jailer's girdle made itself heard up to the stories of the towers, as if to remind the prisoners that the liberty of earth was a luxury beyond their reach. It might have been said that the alteration effected in Baisemeaux extended even to the prisoners. The turnkey, the same who on Aramis's first arrival had shown himself so inquisitive and curious, was now not only silent but impassable he held his head down and seemed afraid to keep his ears open in this way they reached the basement of the bertardiere the two first stories of which were mounted silently and somewhat slowly for baisemeaux though far from disobeying was far from exhibiting any eagerness to obey on arriving at the door baisemeaux showed a disposition to enter the prisoner's chamber but aramis stopping him on the threshold said the rules do not allow the governor to hear the prisoner's confession baisemeaux bowed and made way for aramis who took the lantern and entered and then signed to them to close the door behind him for an instant he remained standing listening whether baisemeaux and the turnkey had retired but as soon as he was assured by the sound of their descending footsteps that they had left the tower he put the lantern on the table and gazed around on a bed of green serge, similar in all respect to the other beds in the Bastille, save that it was newer, and under curtains half-drawn reposed a young man, to whom we have already once before introduced Aramis. According to custom, the prisoner was without a light. At the hour of curfew he was bound to extinguish his lamp, and we perceive how much he was favored in being allowed to keep it burning even till then. Near the bed a large leathern armchair, with twisted legs, sustained his clothes. A little table without pens, books, paper, or ink, stood neglected in sadness near the window, while several plates, still unemptied, showed that the prisoner had scarcely touched his evening meal. Aramis saw that the young man was stretched upon his bed, his face half concealed by his arms. The arrival of a visitor did not cause any change of position. Either he was waiting in expectation or was asleep. Aramis lighted the candle from the lantern, pushed back the armchair, and approached the bed with an evident mixture of interest and respect. The young man raised his head. "'What is it?' said he. "'You desired a confessor,' replied Aramis. "'Yes.' "'Because you were ill.' "'Yes.' "'Very ill.' The young man gave Aramis a piercing glance and answered, "'I thank you.' After a moment's silence, "'I have seen you before,' he continued, 
Aramis bowed. Doubtless the scrutiny the prisoner had just made of the cold, crafty, and imperious character stamped upon the features of the Bishop of Van was little reassuring to one in his situation, for he added, "'I am better.' "'And so?' said Aramis. "'Why, then, being better, I have no longer the same need of a confessor, I think.' "'Not even of the hair-cloth, which the note you found in your bread informed you of.' The young man started, but before he had either assented or denied, Aramis continued, "'Not even of the ecclesiastic from whom you were to hear an important revelation.' "'If it be so,' said the young man, sinking again on his pillow. "'It is different. I am listening.' Aramis then looked at him more closely and was struck with the easy majesty of his mien, one which can never be acquired unless heaven has implanted it in the blood or heart. "'Sit down, monsieur,' said the prisoner. Aramis bowed and obeyed. "'How does the Bastille agree with you?' asked the bishop. "'Very well.' you do not suffer no you have nothing to regret nothing not even your liberty what do you call liberty monsieur asked the prisoner with the tone of a man who is preparing for a struggle i call liberty the flowers the air light the stars the happiness of going whithersoever the sinewy limbs of one-and-twenty chance to wish to carry you the young man smiled whether in resignation or contempt it was difficult to tell look said he i have in that japanese vase two roses gathered yesterday evening in the bud from the governor's garden this morning they have blown and spread their vermilion chalice beneath my gaze with every opening petal they unfold the treasures of their perfumes, filling my chamber with a fragrance that embalms it. Look now on these two roses. Even among roses these are beautiful, and the rose is the most beautiful of flowers. Why, then, do you bid me desire other flowers, when I possess the loveliest of all? Aramis gazed at the young man in surprise. If flowers constitute liberty sadly resumed the captive i am free for i possess them but the air cried aramis air is so necessary to life well monsieur returned the prisoner draw near to the window it is open between high heaven and earth the wind whirls on its waftages of hail and lightning exhales its torrid mist or breathes in gentle breezes it caresses my face when mounted on the back of this armchair with my arm round the bars of the window to sustain myself i fancy i am swimming the wide expense before me the countenance of aramis darkened as the young man continued light i have what is better than light i have the sun a friend who comes to visit me every day without the permission of the governor or the jailer's company. He comes in at the window and traces in my room a square the shape of the window, which lights up the hangings of my bed and floods the very floor. 
this luminous square increases from ten o'clock till midday and decreases from one till three slowly as if having hastened to my presence it sorrowed at bidding me farewell when its last ray disappears i have enjoyed its presence for five hours is not that sufficient i have been told that there are unhappy beings who dig in quarries and laborers who toil in mines who never behold it at all aramis wiped the drops from his brow as to the stars which are so delightful to view continued the young man they all resemble each other save in size and brilliancy i am a favored mortal for if you had not lighted that candle you would have been able to see the beautiful stars which i was gazing at from my couch before your arrival whose silvery rays were stealing through my brain aramis lowered his head he felt himself overwhelmed with the bitter flow of that sinister philosophy which is the religion of the captive so much then for the flowers the air the daylight and the stars tranquilly continued the young man there remains but exercise do i not walk all day in the governor's garden if it is fine here if it rains in the fresh air if it is warm in the perfect warmth thanks to my winter stove if it be cold huh, monsieur do you fancy continued the prisoner not without bitterness that men have not done everything for me that a man can hope or desire men said aramis be it so but it seems to me you are forgetting heaven indeed i have forgotten heaven murmured the prisoner with emotion but why do you mention it of what use is it to talk to a prisoner of heaven aramis looked steadily at this singular youth who possessed the resignation of a martyr and the smile of an atheist is not heaven in everything he murmured in a reproachful tone say rather at the end of everything answered the prisoner firmly be it so said aramis but let us return to our starting point i ask nothing better returned the young man i am your confessor yes well then you ought as a penitent to tell me the truth my whole desire is to tell it you every prisoner has committed some crime for which he has been imprisoned what crime then have you committed you asked me the same question the first time you saw me returned the prisoner and then as now you evaded giving me an answer and what reason have you for thinking that i shall now reply to you because this time i am your confessor then if you wish me to tell what crime i have committed explain to me in what a crime consists for as my conscience does not accuse me i aver that i am not a criminal we are often criminals in the sight of the great of the earth 
not alone for having ourselves committed crimes, but because we know that crimes have been committed. The prisoner manifested the deepest attention. Yes, I understand you, he said after a pause. Yes, you are right, monsieur. It is very possible that in such a light I am a criminal in the eyes of the great of the earth. Ah, then you know something, said Aramis, who thought he had pierced not merely through a defect in the harness, but through the joints of it. No, I am not aware of anything, replied the young man. But sometimes I think, and I say to myself. What do you say to yourself? That... If I were to think but a little more deeply, I should either go mad, or I shall divine a great deal. And then, and then, said Aramis impatiently, then I leave off. You leave off? Yes, my head becomes confused and my ideas melancholy. I feel ennui overtaking me. I wish what i don't know but i do not like to give myself up to longing for things which i do not possess when i am so happy with what i have you are afraid of death said aramis with a slight uneasiness yes said the young man smiling aramis felt the chill of that smile and shuddered oh as you fear death you know more about matters than you say he cried and you returned the prisoner who bade me to ask to see you you who when i did ask to see you came here promising a world of confidence how is that nevertheless it is you who are silent leaving it for me to speak since then we both wear masks either let us both retain them or put them aside together Aramis felt the force and justice of the remark, saying to himself, "'This is no ordinary man. I must be cautious.' "'Are you ambitious?' said he suddenly to the prisoner aloud, without preparing him for the alteration. "'What do you mean by ambitious?' replied the youth. "'Ambition,' replied Aramis, "'is the feeling which prompts a man to desire more.' much more than he possesses i said that i was contented monsieur but perhaps i deceive myself i am ignorant of the nature of ambition but it is not possible i may have some tell me your mind that is all i ask an ambitious man said aramis is one who covets that which is beyond his station I covet nothing beyond my station, said the young man with an assurance of manner which for the second time made the bishop of Van tremble. He was silent, but to look at the kindling eye, the knitted brow, and the reflective attitude of the captive, it was evident that he expected something more than silence, a silence which Aramis now broke. You lied the first time I saw you, said he. Lied? cried the young man, starting up on his couch, with such a tone in his voice, and 
such a lightning in his eyes that Aramis recoiled in spite of himself. "'I should say,' returned Aramis, bowing. "'You concealed from me what you knew of your infancy.' "'A man's secrets are his own, monsieur,' retorted the prisoner, "'and not at the mercy of the first chance-comer.' "'True.' said aramis bowing still lower than before tis true pardon me but to-day do i still occupy the place of a chance comer i beseech you to reply monseigneur this title slightly disturbed the prisoner but nevertheless he did not appear astonished that it was given him i do not know you monsieur said he oh but if i dared i would take your hand and kiss it the young man seemed as if he were going to give aramis his hand but the light which beamed in his eyes faded away and he coldly and distrustfully withdrew his hand again kiss the hand of a prisoner he said shaking his head to what purpose why did you tell me said aramis that you were happy here why that you aspired to nothing why in a word by thus speaking do you prevent me from being frank in my turn the same light shone a third time in the young man's eyes but died ineffectually away as before you distrust me said aramis and why say you so monsieur oh for a very simple reason if you know what you ought to know you ought to mistrust everybody then uh, do not be astonished that i am mistrustful since you suspect me of knowing what i do not know aramis was struck with admiration at this energetic resistance ah oh, monseigneur you drive me to despair said he striking the armchair with his fists and on my part i do not comprehend you monsieur well then try to understand me the prisoner looked fixedly at aramis sometimes it seems to me said the latter that i have before me the man whom i seek and then and then your man disappears is it not so said the prisoner smiling so much the better aramis rose certainly said he i have nothing further to say to a man who mistrusts me as you do and i monsieur said the prisoner in the same tone have nothing to say to a man who will not understand that a prisoner ought to be mistrustful of everybody even of his old friends said aramis oh monseigneur you are too prudent of my old friends you one of my old friends you do you no longer remember said aramis that you once saw in the village where your early years were spent do you know the name of the village asked the prisoner noisy le sec monseigneur answered aramis firmly go on said the young man with an immovable aspect stay monseigneur said aramis 
if you are positively resolved to carry on this game let us break off i am here to tell you many things tis true but you must allow me to see that on your side you have a desire to know them before revealing the important matters i still withhold be assured i am in need of some encouragement if not candor a little sympathy if not confidence but you keep yourself entrenched in a pretended which paralyzes me oh not for the reason you think for ignorant as you may be or indifferent as you feign to be you are none the less what you are monseigneur and there is nothing nothing mark me which can cause you not to be so i promise you replied the prisoner to hear you without impatience only it appears to me that i have a right to repeat the question i have already asked who are you do you remember fifteen or eighteen years ago seeing at noisy le sec a cavalier accompanied by a lady in black silk with flame-colored ribbons in her hair yes said the young man i once asked the name of this cavalier and they told me that he called himself the abbe d'herblay i was astonished that the abbe had so warlike an air and they replied that there was nothing singular in that seeing that he was one of louis the thirteenth's musketeers well said aramis that musketeer and abbe afterward bishop of van is your confessor now i know it i recognized you then monseigneur if you know that i must further add a fact of which you are ignorant that if the king were to know this evening of the presence of his musketeer and this abbe this bishop this confessor here he who has risked everything to visit you to-morrow would behold the steely glitter of the executioner's axe in a dungeon more gloomy more obscure than yours while listening to these words delivered with emphasis the young man had raised himself on his couch and was now gazing more and more eagerly at aramis the result of this scrutiny was that he appeared to derive some confidence from it yes he murmured i remember perfectly the woman of whom you speak came once with you and twice afterwards with another he hesitated with another who came to see you every month is it not so monseigneur yes do you know who this lady was the light seemed ready to flash from the prisoner's eyes i am aware that she was one of the ladies of the court he said you remember that lady well do you not oh my recollection can hardly be very confused on this head said the young prisoner i saw that lady once with a gentleman about forty-five years old i saw her once with you and with the lady dressed in black i have seen her twice since then with the same person these four people with my master and an old paranetta my jailer and the governor of the prison are the only persons with whom i have ever spoken and indeed almost the only persons i have ever seen then you were in prison if i am a prisoner here then i was comparatively free although in a very narrow sense 
a house i never quitted a garden surrounded with walls i could not climb these constituted my residence but you know it as you have been there in a word being accustomed to live within these bounds i never cared to leave them and so you will understand monsieur that having never seen anything of the world i have nothing left to care for and therefore if you relate anything you will be obliged to explain each item to me as you go along and i will do so said aramis bowing for it is my duty monseigneur well then begin by telling me who was my tutor a worthy and above all an honorable gentleman monseigneur fit guide for both body and soul had you ever any reason to complain of him oh no uh, quite the contrary but this gentleman of yours often used to tell me that my father and mother were dead did he deceive me or did he speak the truth he was compelled to comply with the orders given him then he lied in one respect your father is dead and my mother she is dead for you but then she lives for others does she not yes and i and i then the young man looked sharply at aramis am compelled to live in the obscurity of a prison alas i fear so and that because my presence in the world would lead to the revelation of a great secret certainly a very great secret my enemy must indeed be powerful to be able to shut up in the bastille a child such as i then was he is more powerful than my mother then and why do you ask that because my mother would have taken my part aramis hesitated yes monseigneur more powerful than your mother seeing then that my nurse and preceptor were carried off and that i also was separated from them either they were or i am very dangerous to my enemy yes but you are alluding to a peril from which he freed himself by causing the nurse and preceptor to disappear answered aramis quietly disappear cried the prisoner how did they disappear in a very sure way answered aramis they are dead the young man turned pale and passed his hand tremblingly over his face poison he asked poison the prisoner reflected a moment my enemy must indeed have been very cruel or hard beset by necessity to assassinate those two innocent people my sole support for the worthy gentleman and the poor nurse had never harmed a living being in your family monseigneur necessity is stern and so it is necessity which compels me to my great regret to tell you that this gentleman and the unhappy lady have been assassinated 
Oh, you tell me nothing I am not aware of, said the prisoner, knitting his brows. How? I suspected it. Why? I will tell you. At this moment the young man, supporting himself on his two elbows, drew close to Aramis's face, with such an expression of dignity, of self-command, and of defiance even, that the bishop felt the electricity of enthusiasm strike in devouring flashes from that great heart of his into his brain of adamant. "'Speak, Monseigneur. I have already told you that by conversing with you I endanger my life.' little value as it has i implore you to accept it as the ransom of your own well resumed the young man this is why i suspected they had killed my nurse and my preceptor whom you used to call your father yes whom i called my father but whose son i well knew i was not who caused you to suppose so just as you, monsieur, are too respectful for a friend, he was also too respectful for a father. I, however, said Aramis, have no intention to disguise myself. The young man nodded assent and continued. Undoubtedly, I was not destined to perpetual seclusion, said the prisoner, and that which makes me believe so above all now is the care that was taken to render me as accomplished a cavalier as possible. The gentleman attached to my person taught me everything he knew himself. Mathematics, a little geometry, astronomy, fencing, and riding. Every morning I went through military exercises and practiced on horseback. Well, one morning during the summer, it being very hot, I went to sleep in the hall. Nothing up to that period, except the respect paid me, had enlightened me or even roused my suspicions. I lived as children, as birds, as plants, as the air and the sun do. I had just turned my fifteenth year. This, then, is eight years ago? Yes, nearly, but I have ceased to reckon time. Excuse me, but what did your tutor tell you? To encourage you to work? He used to say that a man was bound to make for himself in the world that fortune which heaven had refused him at his birth. He added that, being a poor, obscure orphan, I had no one but myself to look to, and that nobody either did or ever would take any interest in me. I was then in the hall I have spoken of, asleep from fatigue with long fencing. My preceptor was in his room on the first floor just over me. Suddenly I heard him exclaim, and then he called. Perinetta, Perinetta, it was my nurse whom he called. Yes, I know it, said Aramis. Continue, Monseigneur. Very likely she was in the garden, for my preceptor came hastily downstairs. I rose, anxious at seeing him anxious. He opened the garden door, still crying out, Perinetta, Perinetta. The windows of the hall looked into the court. The shutters were closed, but through a chink in them I saw my tutor draw near a large well, which was almost directly under the windows of his study. He stooped over the brim, looked into the well, and again cried out, and made wild and affrighted gestures. Where I was I could not only see, but hear, and see and hear I did. "'Go on,' 
I pray you, said Aramis. Dame Perinetta came running up, hearing the governor's cries. He went to meet her, took her by the arm, and drew her quickly towards the edge, after which, as they both bent over it together, Look, look, cried he, what a misfortune! Calm yourself, calm yourself, said Perinetta. What is the matter? The letter, he exclaimed. Do you see that letter pointing to the bottom of the well? What letter, she cried. The letter you see down there, the last letter from the queen. At this word I trembled. My tutor, he who had passed for my father, he was continually recommending me modesty and humility, in correspondence with the queen. The queen's last letter, cried Perinette, without showing more astonishment than at seeing this letter at the bottom of the well. But how came it there? A chance, Dame Perinette, a singular chance. I was entering my room, and on opening the door, the window, too, being open, a puff of air came suddenly and carried off this paper. This letter of Her Majesty's I darted after it and gained the window just in time to see it flutter a moment in the breeze and disappear down the well. Well, said Dame Perinette, and if the letter has fallen into the well, tis all the same as if it was burnt, and as the Queen burns all her letters every time she comes. And so you see this lady who came every month was the Queen, said the prisoner. Doubtless, doubtless, continued the old gentleman, but this letter contained instructions. How can I follow them? Write immediately to her. Give her a plain account of the accident, and the Queen will no doubt write you another letter in place of this. Oh, the Queen would never believe the story, said the good gentleman, shaking his head. She will imagine that I want to keep this letter instead of giving it up like the rest, so, as to have a hold over her. She is so distrustful, and Monsieur de Mazarin so. Yon devil of an Italian is capable of having us poisoned at the first breath of suspicion." Aramis almost imperceptibly smiled. "'You know, Dame Perinette, they are both so suspicious in all that concerns Philippe.' "'Philippe was the name they gave me,' said the prisoner. "'Well, tis no use hesitating,' said Dame Perinette. "'Somebody must go down the well.' "'Of course, so that the person who goes down may read the paper as he is coming up. But let us choose some villager who cannot read.' and then you will be at ease. Granted, but will not any one who descends guess that a paper must be important, for which we risk a man's life? However, you have given me an idea, Dame Perinette. Somebody shall go down the well, but that somebody shall be myself. But at this notion Dame Perinette lamented and cried in such a manner, and so implored the old nobleman with tears in her eyes, that he promised her to obtain a ladder long enough to reach down, while she went in search of some stout-hearted youth, whom she was to persuade that a jewel had fallen into the well, and that this jewel was wrapped in a paper. And as paper, remarked my preceptor, naturally unfolds in water, the young man would not be surprised at finding nothing after all, but the letter wide open. But perhaps the writing will be already effaced by that time, said Dame Perinette. No consequence, provided we secure the letter, on returning it to the queen, she will see at once that we have not betrayed her, and consequently, as we shall not rouse the distrust of Mazarin, we shall have nothing to fear from him. Having come to this resolution, they parted, 
I pushed back the shutter, and seeing that my tutor was about to re-enter, I threw myself on the couch, in a confusion of brain caused by all I had just heard. My governor opened the door a few minutes after, and thinking I was asleep, gently closed it again. As soon as ever it was shut, I rose, and, listening, heard the sound of retiring footsteps. Then I returned to the shutters and saw my tutor and Dame Perinette go out together. I was alone in the house. They had hardly closed the gate before I sprang from the window and ran to the well. Then, just as my governor had leaned over, so leaned I. Something white and luminous glistened in the green and quivering silence of the water. The brilliant disk fascinated and allured me. My eyes became fixed and I could hardly breathe. The well seemed to draw me downwards with its slimy mouth and icy breath, and I thought I read at the bottom of the water characters of fire traced upon the letter the queen had touched. Then, scarcely knowing what I was about, and urged on by one of those instinctive impulses which drive men to destruction, I lowered the cord from the windlass of the well to within about three feet of the water, leaving the bucket dangling, at the same time taking infinite pains not to disturb that coveted letter, which was beginning to change its white tint for the hue of chrysophrase, proof enough that it was sinking, and then, with the rope weltering in my hands, slid down into the abyss. When I saw myself hanging over the dark pool, when I saw the sky lessening above my head, a cold shudder came over me. A chill fear got the better of me. I was seized with giddiness, and the hair rose on my head, but my strong will still reigned supreme over all the terror and disquietude. I gained the water, and at once plunged into it, holding on by one hand while I immersed the other and seized the dear letter, which, alas, came in two in my grasp. I concealed the two fragments in my body-coat, and helping myself with my feet against the sides of the pit, and clinging on with my hands, agile and vigorous as I was, and above all pressed for time, I regained the brink, drenching it as I touched it with the water that streamed off me. I was no sooner out of the well with my prize than I rushed into the sunlight, and took refuge in a kind of shrubbery at the bottom of the garden. As I entered my hiding-place, the bell which resounded when the great gate was opened rang. It was my preceptor come back again. I had but just time. I calculated that it would take ten minutes before he would gain my place of concealment, even if, guessing where I was, he came straight to it, and twenty if he were obliged to look for me, but this was time enough to allow me to read the cherished letter, whose fragments I hastened to unite again. The writing was already faded, but I managed to decipher it all. And will you tell me what you read therein monseigneur asked aramis deeply interested quite enough monsieur to see that my tutor was a man of noble rank and that perinette without being a lady of quality was far better than a servant and also to perceive that i must myself be high-born since the queen anne of austria and mazarin the prime minister commended me so earnestly to their care here the young man paused, quite overcome. "'And what happened?' asked Aramis. "'It happened, monsieur,' answered he, "'that the workmen they had summoned found nothing in the well after the closest search, that my governor perceived that the brink was all watery, 
that i was not so dried by the sun as to prevent dame perronette spying that my garments were moist and lastly that i was seized with a violent fever owing to the chill and the excitement of my discovery an attack of delirium supervening during which i related the whole adventure so that guided by my avowal my governor found the pieces of the queen's letter inside the bolster where i had concealed them ah said aramis now i understand beyond this all is conjecture doubtless the unfortunate lady and gentleman not daring to keep the occurrence secret wrote of all this to the queen and sent back the torn letter after which said aramis you were arrested and removed to the bastille as you see your two attendants disappeared alas let us not take up your time with the dead but see what can be done with the living you told me you were resigned i repeat it without any desire for freedom as i told you without ambition sorrow or thought the young man made no answer well asked aramis why are you silent i think i have spoken enough answered the prisoner and that now it is your turn i am weary end of chapter twenty nine recording by john van stan savannah georgia